Hey, I'm Jen. And I'm Yansu. And you're listening to Auth Ethnic, a podcast with real conversations about race and social issues in America. As a mix of Chinese, Korean, and Chicana, we give the mic to people, stories, and topics that aren't always talked about in the Asian American community. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Auth Ethnic Podcast, a podcast centered around race and social issues in America. I'm Jen Lee, she, her, a Chinese Mexican American and one of your co-hosts. Yonsu is out saving the world right now as a teacher doing social distance learning during the pandemic, probably grading papers or teaching his kids about racial oppression. So I will be hosting today's episode all by myself. And today we'll be talking about why Asians, specifically immigrant, naturalized and first generation Asians tend to still vote conservative. As we get closer to election day in America, we must also ask ourselves why many Asian Americans still vote Republican, despite the right and far right who carry out a racist agenda and spout outright racist rhetoric, all of which goes against everything our community is and stands for. From a September 2020 National Asian American Voter Survey conducted by APIA Vote, when asking different Asian ethnic groups who they'd be more inclined to vote for in the presidential election if they had to do so right now, 34% of Filipino and 48% of Vietnamese said they were more inclined to vote for Trump. This is disproportionately more votes for Trump than other surveyed Asian groups like Chinese, who were 20%, and Japanese, who were 24%. That's still a lot, though, just saying. Uh, maybe you uh, who are listening in and tuning in right now have family members or first-generation parents who say they'll vote for Trump. Why is this? How did they end up conservative? Or is it less about political identity and more to do with when they came to America and how that shaped their mentality? To answer these questions, I thought I'd bring in a professional to help, a professional who also happens to be my uncle. Today, I'm sitting down with my Filipino-American, my Pinoy uncle, Bill Tamayo. Uh, uncle Bill, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, thank you, Jennifer, and good uh, hello to everybody. Uh, so I'm Bill Tamayo. Uh, I'm a native of San Francisco, born and raised here. I'm the son of Filipino immigrants. Uh, my parents came, my dad came as a farm worker in the 20s to Hawaii, and my mother immigrated in 1951. I've been a civil rights lawyer for the last 40-something years, uh, worked at the Asian Law Caucus, uh, where I represent a lot of Asian immigrants, a lot of Filipino immigrants. And for the last 25 years, I've been working at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, uh, where I've sued a lot of companies recovered a lot of money for victims of discrimination, and I oversee all the investigations right, right now of companies. And so uh, I've seen a lot, and I've worked in different coalitions with a lot of people around civil rights issues. But today I really speak in my personal capacity about you know, how the Filipino community is, has evolved. Really, since I have you here uh, as a Filipino American, um, I would really like to dive deeper into Filipinx history to understand the major waves of Filipinx immigration here in America. The Philippines in relationship to the United States. First, you know, Philippines was a colony of Spain, and then there was the Spanish-American War. The United States gets the Philippines, uh, and they get, you know, they get Cuba, they get Puerto Rico, but what they give the status of the Philippines is people in the Philippines are called nationals, which is like, they're not immigrants, they're not aliens, or, but they're not citizens. And so they're allowed to come back and forth if they can, like this is, you know, the turn of the 20th, 19th to the 20th century. So very few could come. Filipinos who are sent to the United States to study 
so that they could run the colonial government. But then there's the, also the perennial labor need. And so where will the labor come from? So the United States looks two places, Portugal and the Philippines. So the Philippines, so you know, tens of thousands of Filipino men are recruited primarily from the area called Ilocos, Ilocos Norte and Ilocos Sur, which is where my family's from, Ilocos Norte, to work as farm works. Now, this is the selling point in part is come to America, right? And then if you're poor in the Philippines in an you know, undeveloped country, what alternatives do you have? So that's the first wave. Now, anti-miscegenation laws, by which bars intermarrying race, prevents them from establishing communities. So things basically stop for Filipino immigration until the 1940s. So Filipinos could not become U.S. citizens. And the only way you could become a U.S. citizen to naturalize, there was a twist in the law. So World War II breaks out uh, all over the world, but uh, particularly in the Philippines. And a lot of Philippine nationals who are in the United States join the U.S. military. They want to defend their homeland, do all these things. But one of the other parts of it is if you enlisted in the U.S. military in a time of war in the U.S., you could become eligible for citizenship. My dad was one of those people, right? He joins the military, uh, works on the Army transport, bringing supplies and equipment across the Pacific. That was their ticket. That was their opportunity, right? They get U.S. citizenship. They can't marry in the United States, right? They're going to the Philippines to find brides, war brides. And so that's how the second wave of Filipino immigration are basically the wives and the children of the first wave. So the second wave, we would say, is the post-1945 to 1965. So how else can people come? They have no relationship to U.S. citizens. Until the law in 1965, the Immigration Act of 1965 passes in the height of the civil rights movement. And so a major part of the immigration law was to allow for professionals to come in, which is how you get a lot of Filipino nurses, doctors, engineers, and accountants who are able to immigrate post-65. Have all these talents, they get US citizenship, and then through the immigration law, they're able to petition for their families. And that's really the bigger wave of the Filipino, it's, it's all the post-65 people. The military was a, a driving force to be that ticket to get American citizenship, to be eligible, and then also a substantial part of Filipino American identity. It, it was a it was a major part because they were involved in it. Um, did they did they get any sort of benefits other than the eligibility? Well, there, I mean, there's certain benefits if you join the military, right? You can get your GI Bill that allows you to go to college, college or education. Um, but it also granted you some opportunities into the civil service, which is federal civil service jobs, which relative to farm work, relative to service industry, working at the post office with benefits was considered a big step up for the Filipino community, which was largely working class. And it opened a lot of doors for you in terms of access to certain kind of jobs, federal jobs that are available. That's why, you know, Filipinos are disproportionately represented in the post office. Oh, wow, you're right. Even in Virginia, when I used to live there, most of the USPS people in our community were like Filipino, uh, Filipinos. Yeah, and, and it's not an accident because if, if you don't go to college, 
what other government job can you get that comes with relative benefits and you can learn the skill to do that and people join the post and you know there's multiple generations now of families that that work at the post office right you had that stability that could set the foundation that you couldn't get yeah. back in yeah. like from generations ago in the 30s and in the 20s like you were denied land but now you have this foundation that you can set your roots and grow from and set your generations in america to, to well grow. yeah and not only that you get the gi bill you can get home loans through the military for military service so it allows people a basis to get into the middle class mm -hmm. Right, which is a major thing. Now, we know that for black GIs who came back from World War II, they were denied the benefits of the GI Bill. Mm. Yeah, I, and then, so it's also really interesting that you've brought up that Filipinx, uh, they were a group that, or this pseudo, the pseudo role, they had a very interesting and different history. Um, but I'm really curious about Southeast Asians, like, Vietnam, like Vietnamese during the Vietnam War and like other Southeast Asians. The fact that a lot of these places were communism, like communism was during that era too, and things were collapsing perhaps in their countries. And was that an incentive to come here? And perhaps that could have influenced their mindset. Well, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting question because I think for the Vietnamese, I mean, they are fleeing Vietnam as refugees. And so the United States opens up a major refugee program, you know, where hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese who could leave uh, are brought to the United States, you know, and settled all over the country. It's a certain period in, U in U.S. history and in world history, right? It's the end of a war, collapsing governments or taking over, you know, and if you were on the losing side, you wanted to get out of there. Right. Uh, as a lawyer at the Asian Law Caucus, I represented people who were, came from communities who were hunted down by their government. So during martial law in the Philippines, I represented political asylum seekers where there was, I mean, they had no, you know, it, the government there was totally repressive. I represented people from Burma who were hunted down by the junta. I represented also people from other countries where there was no sense of democracy at all. And uh, during the period of martial law in the Philippines, I was also an anti-martial law activist. And I realized, I learned that people wanted the basic sense of some system where they could have grievances heard and not be imprisoned and do all these things. So, you know, you fight for the sense of some kind of democratic form of government, some place where you have a, some democratic space to assert your rights. But I, I think, <clears throat> I, I think I'm going to kind of follow up on a point of so for the Filipinos, mm -hmm. they, you know, so this whole thing of colonialism is very important and racism because the United States treats its colonies in a racist way and teaches essentially white supremacy. Mm. And there, to a certain extent, it also teaches idolatry of whites, of white people and whiteness. We're giving you these things and we're, we're opening this up to you. It kind of carries over from the Spanish, uh, you know, where, where the, there is also a racial pecking order, right? And then, you know, the Filipinos who are the indigenous, the Indios are dark, right? And then those who are intermarry with the, with the Spanish, right, are a little lighter. Ah, uh, colorism. And so this whole racial pecking order is not like a new thing. 
the United States comes in, you know, and that's his history as, as the United States, and then it just transfers that back into the Philippines. And so it's part, and, the, and then this, idol, not so much, I don't say idolatry, and the United States is to sometimes looked at as the savior of the Philippines. Mm. It brings it out into, it brings it into the modern world. You know, they build roads, they do all this and all this. So, and they have an educational system. So from the Philippines view, some people say, well, yeah, it was great. The Americans came, they built roads, they, they gave us education, they taught us things. We speak English, which is a major step up, right? It allows you to integrate more quickly into U.S. society. And you're taught the American system about government and, and so in American history. So it's not like it's that difficult, right? Right. I mean, my cousins in the Philippines, and you know, they knew more about U.S. history than a lot, of, a lot of, you know, folks in America do. Right, and I think, I think we need to put ourselves in the mindset of of those people of those generations to see, like, look at what we were able to to get out of this. And I mm -hmm. think it was perhaps less so about political identity, like, or who was in power, or what party was in power at the time in America. Per, um, Pretty sure it was Republican, but or or survival. Yeah, survival. survival. The, the materialist basically getting stability, right? Right, economic stability that outweighed political alignment because that's quite that's quite a privileged mindset to be able to care about political factions and and, and parties when you're out here trying to set a foundation and trying to well, have stability. Well, but the other side of it is, America doesn't integrate people into its political system to participate. You have to, right? You have to go out and demand. We had it. segregation in our political parties. We had segregation in our election system. We had segregation in who runs state government, right? So there's not a natural incentive to be politically active in a, you know, what are considered de democratic places to, to be. I mean, look at, I mean, the whole thing of Fannie Lou Hamer was to challenge the fact that the, you know, Black voters couldn't get seated at the Democratic convention in 1964, right? Mm -hmm. So all you're thinking about really is basic economic stability. You've come from a country where it's poverty. And for most of the Filipinos who came in, particularly in the 20s and 30s, they were poor. And many Filipinos come in, the educated ones come in, and, and they're maybe able to get into the middle class in part because of the civil rights movement. But a lot of their relatives who come in later, they're not rich. You know, there are a lot of them are poor. They're the ones disproportionately represented in the service industry, right? Yeah. And I'm also really curious about how Filipinx uh, Americans fit into the uh, model minority myth or the model no. minority stereotype. Uh, Yonsu and I, in our very first episode, talked about this and broke it down. And uh, we sort of called out that the model minority myth was tailored to and benefited more East Asians than Southeast Asians. Um, so I'm curious from your perspective, how do you think Filipino Americans fit into that and how are they hurt by it? Well, well so I think the model minority myth really starts to get developed in the late 60s, early 70s as a community of color that's not disruptive like blacks that succeeds gets a college education etc and it was used in a way to demean african americans oh yeah and latinos why can't you just be like these quiet asians who know their numbers who are educated blah 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 don't rock the boat blah 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 right 
because it was starting to develop when the bulk of Asians were largely Chinese and Japanese. Chinese and Japanese had been here for a long time. Established. Right, and then many of them were like second, third, fourth generation already and going to school, or they had gotten into the professions already. So then Filipinos, it, it's kind of interesting because Filipinos, uh, it, because our immigration is so disjointed from all very, I mean, it's a stream, but it's from all kinds, all kinds of classes. You know, you could be working class. So for for me, it's, I'm like the, you know, not the first, first way, but we're Filipino Americans. Most of us grew up in working class families. Mm-hmm. Our families are, were janitors, beauticians, maybe they worked at the post office, but, you know, and, and, you know, there are, I had a lot of people that I grew up with, Filipinos, and they never went to college. That was not pushed by their families because their families just didn't think about it. If you can't see yourself in college, you say, well, the, well I, I heard that the best thing to do is get a job in a post office because it gives you benefits. Then that's all you're going to do, right? Mm-hmm. You have to be able to dream. You have to, get, you have to have support to let you dream and think about other things to do. So there's a whole generation that never gets there. And then there are those who are able to go to college. Uh, a lot of Filipino-Americans, I would, I would bet the bulk of Filipino-Americans in my generation born in the late 40s and 50s did not go to college. They got drafted into the military, but a lot of them did not go to college. Uh, but largely they're not in the corporate sector, a lot are in government. They don't go as much into the private sector. And you know, uh, it, it's interesting what's, what's a knock on Filipinos, they say was, well, you guys don't start a whole lot of businesses. Like there's not that many restaurants, all these other kind of businesses. And, and, and what, is, there the, is there something about the entrepreneurial spirit is not as developed or whatever. And, and I, 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 this is a whole nother study, but I think it's also this basic thing of wanting to get stability. Right. And the, and the generational <laughs> differences on, yeah. in Japanese and Chinese, how they already had roots in here and were already well right. into their generations. They definitely had this yeah. upper, yeah. upper hand almost um, in terms of just history yeah. and being able to establish yeah. that. An example that ties both the military aspect for Southeast Asians, as well as the model minority myth, it for in a recent example would be yeah. Tony Pham, who was a uh, Vietnamese refugee and now he is the head of ICE, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Uh, I read an article and they, it was sort of like this this uplifting piece of like, look at look at Tony Pham. He started from nothing. He came here as a refugee. Um, his father was formerly an engineer, uh, but he took up a janitor job here in America. They, they toiled away and they believed in the American dream. They, they played by the rules. They went through the systems. And now he's finally like this, this head of ICE. And like, I'm quite wary about that as like an APIA, as a refugee himself, ironically being the head of the very thing that, uh, you know, catches, catches illegals or, or other immigrants. Um, and it's interesting that whites are putting, I feel that whites are putting him as a wedge uh, to make Latinx and like his own own like Vietnamese refugees and other API refugees um, kind of like wary or, oh, you're a betrayer, like you're betraying us. Like we're questioning, is he really going to uh, enact change within the system? Why I hate this model minority thing. And, and, and so we see is, for a lot of immigrant groups, the first generation, the ones who just arrived, are going to struggle. And because of language, because of discrimination, they're going to start off in you know, the 
lower paying service jobs. You know, they're going to be janitors, they're going to be the maid. But for, I think, some certain Southeast Asian um, communities, by and large, by the second or third generation, the community gets into the middle class or lower middle class at least, right? However, what we need to juxtapose that with is why are generations of Blacks, Puerto Ricans, and Mexicans locked into poverty? Right. That's the issue that we should be looking at. Asians come in, the bulk come in after the civil rights laws have passed. They don't carry these not a baggage is, is too easy of a trauma. word. The it's, trauma. They don't carry the trauma and all this thing of decades of your family being locked out or locked in. And this is why the minor minority is so bad because they say, well, the Asians did all this. Yeah, well, we didn't necessarily have these same quote unquote badges of slavery right. that African Americans have or the, you know, the harsh treatment of Puerto Ricans. Yep. Or of Mexicans. And I mean, you you equated earlier in the conversation how, you know, you got Puerto Rico, you got Cuba, you got the Philippines, yeah. but the, yeah. the, the experiences, because it was the same time that they were collected, but yeah. it's yeah. just interesting to see how the different countries or the ethnicities that are here in America, the disproportionate placements yeah. of us, because we're all at the yes. same timeline, but it's very interesting yeah. to track. It's their in particular relationship to American structural racism. Yes, that's, that's right. really, and to, to, to talk about civil rights, especially what's going on right now with Black Lives Matter and, and focusing more on mm -hmm. that, do you feel Asian Americans today are less or more engaged uh, with politics, activism, uh, and Black lives like uh, nowadays, or are, are, we, are we not doing enough? Are we still ignoring that well, fact? Well, in as much as I believe in the quote-unquote Asian-American category as a political vehicle in one sense, it's also not a main vehicle that I think communities, Asian communities identify yeah. with. 30 years ago, 1990, there were no Asians in the California legislature. And I know this because I was working on redistricting uh, for Asian-Americans and it was like we were trying to push for districts to be drawn that would allow for more Asians to be elected. Uh, I was, it, it, next to San Francisco is Daly City, a city of 100,000 people. And in 1991, 1991, 100,000 people, 72% were people of color, 25% were Filipino. There had been no minorities on the city council. There was an election for the city council, Filipinos ran, neither one of them got elected but we were able to show clear racial polarization that 83% of whites voted for whites and 83%, 75% of Filipinos voted for the Filipino candidates. And so I showed this study to the city attorney's office. I said, you know, you're ripe for us a, a lawsuit under the Voting Rights Act, section two of the Voting Rights Act, because it shows there's clear racial polarization here. So what did they do? One of the city council members um, had just gotten elected to the, uh, County Board of Supervisors, and they appointed a Filipino American to the city council, Daily City Council, Mike Gingona, first Filipino. Wow. And since wow. then, other Filipinos have been elected to the council. I think Filipinos want to be politically engaged, and I think other Asians want to be politically engaged. I think as people, actually, I hate the word uh, acculturate or adjust to a U.S. society, and then they want, and then they, they want to get change. 
and they want to look, they look at the political vehicles. And now you have more Asians in the legislature. You know, you have more Asians in Congress, not still not as many as, as we should, but you know, you're getting more uh, in, into Congress and you're getting more in, into state government. And I think it's just a political maturization, maturation of the community and the younger generations understanding how, you know, the levers of power work yeah. I, and wanting to Yeah, I definitely feel like the more generations that we have, the more generations we have in this country, the more privilege my generations and, and younger generations have to care about these issues. Our parents before us did the hard work, the traumatic work of coming here, not knowing lang like not knowing the language, having to start from zero, giving us yeah. the opportunity now to think of these concepts, to understand yeah. activism, to band together with blacks, indigenous folks, and like other communities of color. And then you get the racism and backlash from COVID-19. Oh yeah. Against people of Asian descent, right? So I always say, we are such disparate communities in the quote unquote Asian American umbrella. You know, and I always say, and it's not like Southeast Asians always socialize with Filipinos, socialize with Chinese. No, we actually don't socialize. If the younger generations do, other communities don't, right? The more immigrant population, they stay within their communities or maybe affiliated to that church or like in the predominantly Filipino church or, you know, so, you know, that's how it goes. But, it, but then anti-Asian violence is like a reminder that we're all in the same boat. And this, I mean, this whole COVID-19 backlash, I mean, the fact, you know, a Filipina is told to go home, go back to where she came from in Orange County, you know, Chinese nurse or Vietnamese doctor are like spit on when they come off their shifts. Yeah you know, and blame for the virus. And then that's why, I mean, that statistic that, that, that came out with, by the National Nurses Organization to point out that, you know, Filipinos, Filipino nurses, right? 20% of the nurse workforce in California, but 70% of the COVID-19 deaths among nurses have been among Filipino Americans. And then we're blamed for the virus too, because of the power of race, racism. So this is America's dilemma. And it, unfortunately, it is our fight as Asian Americans that we have to wage. I really hope that COVID-19 and, and the racism that is against us, the visible hate and um, killings that we see um, and endure, I, I hope that is a catalyst for us as a community to realize uh, an act, especially as Election Day comes closer. I also think it's interesting that according to Getty, Asian American voters have grown by 139% from 2000 to 2020, so in 20 years, um, and we make up almost 5% of all U.S. voters here. Um, and we're also, as you pointed out through history uh, earlier in the podcast, uh, uh, Asian Americans are the highest percentage of naturalized citizens. Uh, and that seems to make sense as, as we have uh, established. Um, Asian immigrants alone have doubled from 3.3 to 6.9 million eligible voters from 2000 to 2018. So we, we do have a lot of, of power, more than I think we realize. And, and I think it's my generation and younger generations, but all of us. Mm -hmm. But I, I think it's important to have these conversations. It's, it's important to bring this up. Yeah, I, I mean, I want to also bring up a point. So my mom immigrated in 1951 but she never applied for US citizenship hmm. until 
the law passes and her incentive to get citizenship is not to be able to vote. It's to be able to petition for her brother under the new immigration law, right? If you're a US citizen, you can petition for your brother. And so he applies, she applies for citizenship, right? And then for a lot, and then she doesn't get involved into the voting or wanting to vote till a little later, right? And then, you know, because it takes time for people to feel like my voice actually counts and it makes a difference to be civically engaged. And she's not different from a lot of Americans who don't vote, right? Because they feel like it doesn't make a difference. I'm not engaged. I just got to get food on the table. And they don't see the interconnections about civic participation. And, you know, we do a bad job as a country to explain civics and why people need to, you know, uh, understand how the system how the system works. And, you know, we, we teach history in a disjointed way. We teach our civics in a very disjointed way that, you know, most American kids growing up don't don't really know their history. They don't even know their their own side. It's very white. It's a white narrative. It's a white supremacist well, narrative. Yeah. Even if they try to learn it, they, they just jump, you know, they, they don't know dates. They don't know events and what the interrelationship is of all these events. And so what do they rely on then? They rely on stereotypes to make decisions. Or they rely on what, what they see on TV, right? right. Particularly, I think, for the, the younger generations that want to be active, and it's very good that they're active. You have got to know US history in and out and how all these relationships from government, from business, from social movements, how it all interacts to get us to this point where some things work, but a lot of things don't work or broken and they need fixing. What do you feel like uh, Asian American youth can do right now with in a similar situation that you had with your mom, but like for people who are my age or younger, what, what can they do just to, to open up that conversation? It's a difficult one. And I know it's difficult for particularly if, if their parents are recent immigrants, um, and they don't see involvement in civic society, or they come from countries where there's not involvement in the civic society. There's no elections, right? There's no democracy. So this is a totally radical thing for them to participate in. But then also the other thing is, you know, if they watch on TV and they see the same old white people talking all the time, they go, oh, that's not for me, that's for them. Because it's the intertwining of national origin and the dovetailing of white supremacy with colonialism. It's just it, 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 in, in the psyche, in, in the consciousness of a population. So, you know, we have this phrase among Filipino organizers and activists, oh yeah, he's got a colonial mentality, which is, you know, you, you love the colonial power. Yeah. And you feel yeah. like a subservient and then you're so grateful for whatever they give you. Inevitably, an idolatry of white supremacy or of white people. Right, right. For a downgrading of your own, right? And I guess, yeah. like, is it, do you do you feel like it would be useful to like have these conversations with with parents who still are in that colonialist mindset? Yeah, I, I think you know you can have these conversations. I mean, I remember parents were saying, "Oh, don't be making trouble. You know, you should be grateful that we're here. You know, you don't don't wreck your chances for a good job, right?" Uh, or they're just saying, "Oh, why are you making all this act?" And I, and I was just very grateful that. My sister, one of my sisters was very active in the third world strike and my parents were supportive. Mm. I mean, the strikers, the part of the strikers, the Asian American strikers 
were planning part of their tactics and developing not just a strike. And my dad was cooking dinner for them. It was great. And all my parents said was, you know, make sure you just don't get hurt. But my dad, because my dad had come in the 20s and he had his understanding of America. He was races. a cook in the military. He cooked in the military. No, well, and, then he under, and he was here during the Depression. He saw how black people were treated. You know, it wasn't that like that far for him. In fact, he told me, he goes, yeah, I remember seeing signs when you had to look for a job. It just said, if you're white, you're right. If you're black, stay back. And if you're brown, stick around, right? For like basic laborer jobs. So he says he understood that, right? I, I really appreciate you having here. I know uh, I should let you go. Live your life in no, the I can lie. I always love to talk <laughs> about social issues. We have to talk about social issues at all times. Absolutely. You know? as, as we wrap up, um, I want to close and ask, what should someone do who's listening right now? And, and after they're finished listening, what, what should they read? What should they watch? What action should they take after finishing this episode? Wow, that's a good question. Well, there's plenty of issues to be active in. Either political campaigns, social movements, always need volunteers. Don't try to find, oh, what's the best one or the safe one for me? Jump in. And I, I'm going to do something really corny. Read the New York Times. There's a lot of stuff that's in the New York Times, very insightful studies about American society and world society. They have, and there's, you know, they have a lot more reporters of color who are reporting about some critical stuff. If you wanna be a social activist, you have to be responsible in a lot of levels. You have to know your stuff. You gotta be, you have to be a risk taker. You have to go out there, you have to be able to confront, but you have to know, you have to do your homework and know your history. You gotta use all the different tools of your disposal, you know, for any social movement. You know, you interact, at the legislature, you interact in Congress, you organize in the streets, you, you demand on your local city council, right? You organize, student, you know, all these things have to happen. That's, that's historically how social movements have always operated. Changing minds, hearts and minds is what it's all about. Well, that's a wrap folks for this episode and you heard it from Uncle Bill. Get involved in whatever it is, it doesn't have to be the perfect thing, the right thing for you. Um, just getting involved, opening those conversations and really reading up on our history. And as I think we've always said on our show, activism isn't always going out there in the streets. It can be many other forms as well. It's doing something. And that can even start by just opening a conversation right now with your, with your parents, with your conservative parents. Thanks for joining us today. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast, leave us a rating, write a review. It always means so much when you do. Tell us what you thought, what you liked, what you want us to talk about next, anything at all. And if you're hungry for more content, you can follow us on Instagram at authethnicpodcast, that's one word, to stay up to date on current events, race issues, and chat directly with us. Share this episode with your friends, your family, coworkers, or anyone you know who wants authenticity around ethnicity. This is Jen Lee from Auth Ethnic signing off, and I challenge you to start a conversation today.